people out there want something for nothing in the sense that you know you the welfare and and uh and, mm. and a manna from heaven right they they wanted to just show up uh, they they you know people say you know they just want the tv it's an 85 inch tv to show up on their wall <laughs> they're not willing to engage in the effort the energy the value for value yeah to gain that tv and most of them are not quite willing to do the looting themselves right so they they outsource the looting and they legitimize the looting by uh, voting for it yes through oh, uh, through a government mechanism right so they 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 outsource it Hey, everybody. Welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and Thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard, hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money Show is 100% sponsor-based, so all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Mr. Euron Brook, welcome hey, back bye. to the What Is Money Show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be back. Wonderful to have you back. It's been a little while since we talked. Um, last Again, time... We both, we both be traveling like crazy, and it was according <laughs> to calendars, but we've been trying. Yes, yes. Too much travel in 2023, and I think we're both going to opt for less of that in 2024. Um, so last time we were talking about Ayn Rand's essay, The Virtue of Selfishness, which mm -hmm. we went through a lot of. Um, and as I, was, as I was just telling you offline, we recently released a reading of, uh, this is an excerpt from Atlas Shrugged, Francisco's Money Speech. It's about a 15 minute um, read, I guess. And we, I had our editor kind of put some animation over it. And I did the read and it did really well online. 
Yeah, it was beautifully done. Beautifully done. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, I Well, I did the easy part. I did the read. The editor did the hard creative part, making it look cool and um, and whatnot. Uh, I'll tell you this story about, the, I don't know if this, whatever, I'll tell the story. I had just arrived at the Nashville airport and I was listening to Atlas Shrugged. I was working my way through the audiobook, which is a 64-hour audiobook, I think. Yeah. I had just arrived in the Nashville airport I had gotten my luggage, went outside of Bad Claim and sat down on a bench to call an Uber to go home. And I call the Uber. I'm sitting there. I've got like a 10-minute wait. And as I'm sitting there, a man walks directly into the center of my field division. And he's wearing (laughs) a money suit. Like his entire suit is green with dollar signs all over it. And he's got his little piece of luggage. And I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. And so I, I snap a picture of him because I'm going to tweet it, say something you know, funny. And the weirdest synchronicity happened because right at that moment, Francisco's money speech began on that audiobook. Wow. Right <laughs> at that exact moment. It's a 64-hour audiobook. So it's not like the, the chances yeah. seem pretty remote that that would happen right at that exact moment. And I had read the money speech years ago, but... The voice acting on this audiobook is so superb and it's just really moving. And when I listen to it, I think I listened to it like six or seven times over the next four or five days. It's just so yeah. good. It can it, yeah. Yeah. it's everything. It tells you everything that's wrong with money and what it does to the world and what it does to human mind well, and heart. Good with money. Everything good with money, not everything wrong with money. Yeah, well, sorry, sorry. I'm saying um yes, you're right. Yes. Good money is good, bad money yeah. is bad. Yep. Yep. Um, and yeah, so that was the inspiration, uh, to do that. And so I was just so taken by this piece. I thought we could spend a little time talking about it today. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the, one of the great passages ever written, I think, in terms of, in terms of, uh, economic truth, moral truth. Uh, it's just, it just really is profound. Yes. Um, I think it does a great job of demonstrating how money does touch everything a little bit. It's mm-hmm. the way she she works through many aspects of money um, in a very poetic yet telling, like informative way. So it's, it's again, Ayn Rand, man, she's on another level. The fact that she takes like serious, rigorously attained libertarian principles and philosophy and delivers it in this literary, poetic, fictional narrative is just like the height of genius. Well, to a large extent, she creates that philosophy. I mean, there is no really, there is there are no real libertarians before Isla Shrug. Mm. So if you think if you think about the libertarian movement, if you think about the libertarian party, if you think about people who are considered big time libertarians, they're all post Adler Shrug. They all read Adler Shrug. They're all inspired by it. It creates it's it's the starting point for whatever free market really big time movement there is. I mean, Mises comes before her. Um he loves Adler Shrug. He he writes her a letter about it and, and how much it, it it impacted him, and they have they have a great they have a relationship, um, intellectual relationship for a while, friendly relationship, and um, 
You know, the only one of the free market guys who didn't read Ayn Rand was uh, was Hayek, who, who mm. claimed to try to read Alice Shrugged and never be able to actually get through it. So, uh, uh, but but pretty much everybody else read it, and it was the beginning of you know a a, a, a free market. I think we are push in in uh, in in the world. Um, and the ph- philosophically, she is the originator. She this this philosophy comes from her. There's really no before her who is presenting anywhere close to these ideas leading up to this idea of political freedom. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, what she, you, she was the credit. What do you? I did actually didn't know that. That's very interesting. So when I invoke that term libertarian philosophy, I guess I'm typically referring to Mises and his predecessors, like Bohm Bork uh, and and others that came before him. What do you call that line? You just call that Austrian economics, or what do you call that? Yeah, so they're the Austrian economists, and they're really, I'd say, the founders of Austrian economics. I mean, yeah. Menger, Bavik, Mises, yeah. uh, those are the those are the founders, the originators. And I, but I think their focus is, you know, whether at their best is when they focus on economics. They're great economists. Yeah. I think the greatest economists who've ever lived. Um, but they're not philosophers, and they're not setting out a whole philosophical um, framework for liberty. They're basically telling you, this is how liberty works. This is how markets work. I mean, yeah. you can ignore it. You cannot ignore it, but the rules of the, the laws of economics are just like the laws of anything else, and they, right. they function. They're, 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 they're true. And um, But what, what she does is now she takes the economic thinking um, it's just one piece of of a much of a much bigger philosophical mm. goal, which is to establish a philosophy for liberty. Um, and uh, you know, we talked about the virtue of selfishness. So you need a you need a morality for that. You, you need a, a a concept about how people know how how human beings know, which is an epistemology. And and she's very original in in all of that in all those uh, philosophical realms. Mm. And then Atlas Shrugged is really a combination because it's more than just about economics, right? It's about how you should live as, a, as an individual human mind. It's about the role of reason. She said the, the, the theme of Atlas Shrugged, like the, the theme of the book is the role of the mind in human life. Mm. She shows how, the, you know, if you use your mind, if you're rational at every level from the personal to the political, what impact that has versus the people who don't use their mind. Mm. And that's the integration. So the businessmen are using their mind to apply it to changing the world to make it to 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 make us materially better. Mm. And then they're businessmen who don't use their mind, and then they use force. Right? The only alternative mm-hmm. to not using mind is to use force. And they're the you know they're the moochers, they're the they're the uh, Iron who who just use government in order to take rather than to produce and create. Right. So the whole book is an illustration of the way to live, and it's it's deeply philosophical and it's. You know, she has a lot of speeches in it to make it very explicitly philosophical. But even without the speeches, just the story is very philosophical. Yes. No, it's so good. Such an engaging narrative. Um, who who were the inspirations for Rand in terms of her, I guess, philosophical thing? I know you said, I think in one of our last episodes, Aristotle, she credited Aristotle uh, in his, his book on ethics. Or were there other... Um, were Austrian economists part of her influ- influence in her thinking? I, I definitely think so. I mean, uh, philosophically, it's Aristotle. I, I don't think there was 
other philosophers other than Aristotle. And it's not just his ethics, it's also um, his focus on reality, his science, right? Aristotle's the first scientist. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of is is dabbling with the, the he, putting together the first scientific method. He's the founder, he's the creative logic. So he's, he's uh, you know, man is a rational animal is, is an Arist- Aristotle's formulation. Mm. So it's definitely Aristotle. And then I, I think she was influenced by and, and uh, engaged with a lot of the free market thinkers of the, you know, early, well, mid 20th century. Um, certainly the Austrians, uh, I mean, me, Hazlitt, who wrote Economics in One Lesson. Mm. Um, I I don't know if she read Manga and von Bavik, but she definitely read uh, she definitely read uh, Mises. She she also read uh, wrote the stuff to by Hayek and did not like it and was very mm. critical. Uh, but she read um, uh, you know some of the some of the women that were uh, God I I'm terrible with names, but the women who were, were part of kind of the free market mm. at the time. Uh, there were there were a couple of authors that got in the machine. Um, uh, uh, I forget the name of the author. God, I shouldn't forget them. But um, so so and and she, you know she was one of the founders of Fee Fee the the Foundation for Economic Education, which yeah. still today. Uh, that was founded in the, in the late '40s. She was part of the founders. She then had a falling out with them again because she was more philosophical, and she insisted on a philosophical approach, and they wanted to be more economic and, mm. and and wanted to be a bigger tent philosophically. Um, so she had a falling out with them, but she, but definitely she communicated with them and, and had backs and forth. So so she was very engaged with that movement in, in the uh, 30s and 40s. And I think certainly Mises had an impact on her and, uh, and some of the other free markets thinkers of the time. Mm. Beautiful. I, uh, I didn't actually realize that that she was kind of the origin point for the whole libertarian political movement and philosophy that's very interesting there's a book out there called it all begins with ayn rand mm, okay. um just kind of written by a libertarian um he, he's kind of mixed on ayn rand in the end but but he, he, his whole argument is almost all libertarians come to libertarianism through ayn rand in one way or the other wow it obviously doesn't apply to everybody, but a lot of people discover these ideas through Ayn Rand. And, and Atlas Shrugged in particular, right? I think Atlas Shrugged in particular. I mean, uh, and, and many of the thinkers and economists who are the modern Austrians, many of them discovered or, or, or read Atlas Shrugged at some point and were influenced by it. Yeah. Wow. And that the book's written in like the 1950s, is that right? Fifty. It was published in 1957. 57, yeah. And it wow. still sells an amazing number of copies. Uh, it, it It's still hugely influential. And wow. So st- people still engage with. And uh, you've just read it, so you know. I mean, it, it, yeah. it doesn't sound old, right? It, I mean, it sounds so well, well, The story it, is so relevant. It explains everything that's going on today wow, yeah. so clearly. Yeah. Um, and yeah. wow, so that's interesting that we're really less than 70 years into the emergence of libertarianism proper. So we're, I mean, this game is you over. Know, I'm not a big fan of the term libertarianism, but but because I think it's it's too much of a big tent and, and there are a lot of people in that tent who I, I think are, are, are not good for the movement. But mm-hmm. I, I do think it's, it's, it's only 70 years since these ideas of liberty, freedom, uh, of, of, you know, 
rational self-interest as articulated in the virtue of selfishness have be, really been out there in the culture. And it, it takes a long time to have real lasting influence. Yeah. Wow. It's still a young philosophy. Yes, yes. That's what I was getting at, young philosophy. Okay, so I'm going to jump into some excerpts here and then sure. we'll just kind of riff on it. So the passage opens with I, basically, I think, so one of the main characters, Francisco Danconia, who is, I guess, one of the good guys, we would say, one of the, the rational humans, uh, very accomplished individual, someone you would uh, look up to in, in many ways, a very successful entrepreneur, um, a bit of an aristocratic guy, I guess, right? Comes from a, a very accomplished family. South American, very wealthy family, but yeah. accomplished in its own, in his own right, uh, very benevolent, happy, happy kind of projects kind of a self-confidence and happiness, but is in the book, the guy who is going around challenging people mm -hmm. about the ideas that they hold. Yes. And shows up at parties and stuff and, and gives little speeches that kind of provoke people, whether it's about money or he has, he has one about sex later on. So yeah. it's, he kind of keeps, keeps, keeps it going intellectually to a large extent, the story, I think. A spicy guy. Uh, so, and that's exactly what he's doing here. Actually, he's responding to someone uh, who says something to the effect, money is the root of all evil, right? Which is, this is a derivative from the Bible verse, right? That money is the root of all kinds of evil. People often sort of misquote that as saying, saying money is the root of all evil. And so this passage begins with Denconia responding to her, I think. So you think that money is the root of all evil, said Francisco Danconia. Have you ever asked, what is the root of money? Money is a tool of exchange, which can't exist unless there are goods produced and men able to produce them. Money is the material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. Money is not the tool of the moochers who claim your product by tears or of the looters who take it from you by force. Money is made possible only by the men who produce. Is that what you consider evil? I just, <laughs> she's such a good writer. The yep. material shape of the principle that men who wish to deal with one another must deal by trade and give value for value. What, okay, this is why I love the question, what is money, by the way, because you get into these other deeper philosophical questions like what is value? What does she mean by that? It's the material shape of the principle that we must deal with one another through trade and give value for value. What does she mean by value for value? Is this effort for effort? Is this consent? For oh, it's, 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 you know, in, in other passages, she talks about value to whom and for what, right? Value doesn't just stand out there as a, as an abstraction, but it's it's a value to you or a value to me. Mm -hmm. And the only time we will trade is if you're giving me something worth to me more than what I'm giving up. Mm. And if getting from me something worth to you more than you gave up. Yes. It, it's a recognition of the fact that we don't have, we don't value everything exactly the same. We don't, uh, you know, we, we, we uh, uh, relative to other things that we could have, we don't, so even relative to money or relative to, to denominated, denominated money, if I buy something from you for $100, I'm 
That means you value the hundred dollars more than the thing you're giving me. Yes. And I value the thing that you're giving me more than the hundred dollars. Yeah. So uh, this is that recognition that we are value for value means uh, uh, that we're both better off on mm -hmm. the exchange. It means that we each get what we want in a sense mm. from the exchange. It's a win-win by 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 essentially that like if I'm value if I get a value and you don't, then it's not win-win anymore. And, mm. and that's not what she's talking about. She's talking about a trade mm. and give value for value, which means both parties get something of value to them. Um, so it's capturing a lot of content. There's a huge amount here. And that the only way, the only way that we benefit one another uh, uh, is by exchanging in this way, right? Any other form of human interaction that you know is either me exploiting you or you exploiting me mm -hmm. uh, or about ex being exploited by somebody else but what's new is the idea that what money is facilitating what money takes what she says a material shape up so it's 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 the recognition of that the real way in which human beings should interact with one another is through this trade through value for value through win-win mm -hmm. relationships yeah, I think she said, I don't know where, but something, I'm, I'll be paraphrasing, value is that which man acts to gain or keep. That's right. That's in the virtue of selfishness. Yeah. Uh, so, act to gain or keep. Each one of us acts to gain or keep the, our own values. So values are very individual. Yes. They, they are personal. They are value to you. Uh, what is it do you want to act to gain or keep? Yes. Yes, and that the the dynamic you're describing, where you only trade something once you think the thing you're getting is more valuable than the thing you're giving up, and then your trading partner thinks the exact same thing in reverse. That's what the economists call the inequality of exchange. So then, value for value is the inequality of exchange, basically. Absolutely, and and it's uh, it is, but it, you know. It, I I think it's more meaningful to talk about it in terms of. I mean, I think inequality of exchange is a yeah, it's the same concept. It's the same concept. It's just kind of a drier, cl more clinical way of saying value for value, I guess. Yeah, and it takes human beings out of it. It takes the yeah. value out of it. The inequality, I mean, who's inequality, inequality regarding what? Yeah. It's the fact that we each value things differently. And and um, if we all valued everything the same, there would be no exchange. Right. And we'd never get better. Uh, and so, and and what, what looting is, you know, what, what the... What 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 the state does, or what uh, uh, is take from some and give to others. That yeah. is, it, it it replaces this idea of value for value with uh, force, with uh, somebody else dictating to you what you should value and how much you should value it for. Yeah, you know, as you know, it's you know, you know, your taxes are going for good things. I don't know, they're going to help the poor. And one response to that is, look, if I wanted to help the poor, I could help the poor myself. I could decide how much to help the poor. I could decide how to help the poor. Yeah. And then some people, it's not a value for them to help the poor. So who are you to decide what values they should have, right? right. They, they would rather help somebody else, right? Or not help anybody. So it's what what what, what always happens uh, when, when um, force is introduced is somebody else is... Uh, forcing their values onto you. 
Mm, yes. Yes. Yeah, so the other way to frame this perhaps is value for value is a positive sum game, right? This mm -hmm. is free trade. Yep. Value for non-value is a zero sum game, which is forcible looting basically, right? Uh, everyone's win is someone else's loss versus win-win. Yeah, and in the end, I think in the end, if you if you if you follow through on the concept, you're like uh, you have zero sum. In the end, nobody wins, right? Yes. So the reality is that if you can either play win-win, you can either have win-win relationships or win-lose relationships. But win-lose relationships almost always turn into lose-lose relationships. Yes. And people and people get this when it comes to their personal life. Like, if you have a win-lose relationship with your wife. You will lose in the end. <laughs> you know, it will turn into a lose-lose thing, right? Yes. There's no good that is going to come of it. But the same thing is in the economy. If 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 uh, somebody seems to be gaining money because they're exploiting or they're cheating or they're stealing and managing to create win-lose situations, that is not sustainable. That They right. will lose. And indeed, if the system is built around win-lose relationships, which much of our economies... Mm -hmm built around win-lose relationships, then the system penalizes everybody. Everybody is a victim of it in the end. Uh, even if they're richer, uh, there's, there's not much they can do with the wealth and, and there's not much self-esteem they can gain from having the wealth because they know that they got it by deception. They, they know they got it by by exploitation rather than actually earning it. Yes. No, that is and an excellent- Because he talks about this in the speech, yes. about what it own wealth, what it means to earn money. And she talks about the thing you just talked about, which is if it's a win-lose game, it degenerates into lose-lose, right? Absolutely. Which gets into at the very end here. Um, okay, we'll head that direction. I'll read another excerpt here. A little further down, she writes, Not an ocean of tears, nor all the guns in the world, can transform those pieces of paper in your wallet into the bread you will need to survive tomorrow. Those pieces of paper, which should have been gold, are a token of honor. Your claim upon the energy of men who produce. Your wallet is your statement of hope that somewhere in the world around around you, there are men who will not default on that moral principle, which is the root of money. Is this what you consider evil? So so beautiful. So I, yeah, I mean, it's it's a lot of economists you find a lot of economists making this error a lot of people a lot of economists who talk about scarcity make this error it, it's it's the assumption that goods are just there uh -huh. that economics is the study of okay well the goods are there how do we allocate them right who should get what? right and her point here and everywhere else in her philosophy is nothing is here mm -hmm. everything we have has to be produced Yes. Like this black gunk in the ground. It's just black gunk that, that everybody hates until somebody figures out how to make oil from it and actually builds the pipeline and does the chemistry and does the thing to turn it into oil that then becomes a, a something. Mm -hmm. they, they, there's ground and there's seeds, but until somebody plants it and, and waters it and cultivates it, only then do you have food. Everything human beings have has to be produced. And it Everything that needs to be produced has to, has to produce us. Somebody has to engage his own mind in setting in motion production. Uh -huh. And it, so having the piece of paper in your pocket doesn't guarantee that anybody will produce anything. 
and and indeed, if you think about Adler Schwab without giving the story away, right? I mean, what happens when when some of those producers decide not to produce anymore? Mm-hmm. Well, you can buy stuff with your those stuff in your pocket because <laughs> they're not being produced. Nothing's being produced. The money in your pocket becomes, in a sense, just paper, or even if it's gold, it's just gold. And mm-hmm. it's not a medium of exchange because there's nothing to exchange it for. Yeah. That is the stuff that you need to live because you can't live on gold, you can't eat gold, can't burn gold. The stuff that you need to actually live off of, it needs to be produced by other human beings. And and gold or money is just is the way in which you trade with them. But um, it's their production that's what matters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's the the money is pointless without the producers. Basically, it's like yeah. I mean you. I, I mean, you, you, your wallet is a statement of hope that somebody in the world will produce, right? It will produce yeah. something you can then buy buy from them, particularly in a fiat money world in which literally it's paper, mm-hmm. literally not worth anything yeah. unless somebody is willing to exchange it for a real good. It's the real goods that are worth something. Right. The paper money just represents a, 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 a you know a, a means by which to to purchase that uh, real good. But if people stop producing real goods. The paper's worthless. And this, I think, is pointing to the importance of commodity money or proof of work more generally, right? Like the wor- the money needs to be hard to produce for producers to want to accept it in trade. Otherwise, it's just going to be counterfeited well, ad infinitum. The, the producers are willing to accept. I mean, they're, today they're willing to accept fiat money because they can turn around and buy other values with that fiat money that is... Because of a variety of different reasons in our culture, mm. uh, uh, fiat money is has become a medium of exchange and is accepted as su- as such. The problem with it, of course, is that it can be devalued. It can be devalued easily uh, by by the printing press. It can be devalued by all kinds of financial machinations that the government and the Federal Reserve can engage in, um, and it, so that you don't really know what value it has over the long run. And uh, it can also be easily, you know, easily confiscated by by the authorities. Uh, mm-hmm. So having a a commodity money is something that cannot be devalued. Um, it cannot be easily uh, inflated, uh, and uh, it, you know, and it cannot be easily um, it cannot be easily confiscated because the reality is that most of our fiat money that we hold, we hold in digital form. We hold in bank accounts. I mean, we hold in. We don't, we don't hold it in cash. If it was in cash, it would be hard to take away from us. Yeah. But the fact is that it's in places where the authorities can easily track it and find it and take it if they need to. And that's why they, they spend a lot of time and a lot of energy tracking every dollar that you put through the banking system uh-huh. is, is being tracked, particularly if it's large denominations. If you're moving uh, thousands of dollars in your bank account, the government gets a record of that. Uh, yeah. So... Um, the other thing is, oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, that's right. Okay. The other thing that stood out to me here is she's connecting money to energy, mm-hmm. right? A claim upon the energy of men who produce. And she's also connecting money to this moral principle, which she says is the root of money. Um, this is where it's just so interesting. Like, so. Is money a representation of energy 
and morality? And if so, are we, by debasing money, are we debasing human energy and or human morality? Like, what are the connections here? Well, there's a sense in which we're debasing it or we're, we're, we're undermining it and, and belittling it. I mean, what does money represent? Money represents the productive effort that you put in in order to earn it. Uh-huh. Um, and what is that productive effort? That productive effort is energy. I mean, energy is a big part of that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you work, you, you, you do stuff. And, and you, you know, even if most of your work is, is work of the brain, you're activating energy both internally to you and, and in the world around you. If mm-hmm. you produce something, machines are creating it and you are making that possible. So you're, you're creating in that sense energy out there. So production cannot exist without energy and the producer is somebody who who is using energy to to make stuff to to produce stuff to create values and money represents that so money is representative of of that uh of that energy and we debase it when we uh, inflate it then we're saying your energy is uh, is not worth that much right we're, we're, we're making it cheaper we're, we're making it worth less that representation of that energy uh, loses value, and the same thing with with um, you know the mall principle. The mall principle that you must produce mm-hmm. that production is uh, you know one of one of Rand's virtues that we talked about in um, in the virtue of selfishness is productiveness. It it morality requires that you produce what you need in order to survive and to thrive and, mm-hmm. and achieve happiness in the end. So it's 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 upon you morally to be a producer to to produce uh, to produce something and uh, use your mind in order to do that and and money again is a since money represents production money represents your thinking money represents your productiveness it represents your virtue it represents the energy you exert in producing and and in being virtuous. Mm-hmm. So you can't separate morality from money. And in that sense, in a free market, if you see somebody who is a great producer, and part of the way you see that is by, in a free market, somebody who's made a lot of money is a great producer. They've, mm-hmm. they've produced great values. Um, then, you know, the, the, there's a moral estimate that goes with that. To, oh, that's a sign of morality. That's a sign that this is a good human being. He's used mm-hmm. his mind, used his energy, to be productive, to create values, and to trade those values for other people. And the money, let's say he's a billionaire, the money is a representation of all those trades. It's a yeah. summation of the trades and the production and the energy that he's put into it. And therefore, in a sense, a summation of his virtue. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to look at it that way. Because So basically, to the extent the money cannot be stolen or otherwise expropriated is the extent to which it represents the the virtuosity of the the individual, right? Because well, you couldn't get the money you couldn't get the money through uh let's say immoral means, then you only obtained it through production, through moral means, and that would mean the richest people are the most moral or most productive or most cr- creative, yeah. something like that. Absolutely. I mean in 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 one has to have According to Rand, one, and this is part of the motive for the speech, if somebody has a lot of money and they've earned it, honestly, let's say through production, yeah. that is a virtue. You you have to you you have to approach them with the assumption that they are good people, moral people, virtuous yes. people. I mean, it could 
turn out that in other parts of their life they do bad things, but there's a limit to how disintegrated a human being can be. You know, right. I'm a I'm a devil over here, but I'm a great producer over here. That right. just doesn't exist. But you, you you know you could have somebody who lies to his wife and does all I don't know cheats and over here and and yet is a great producer. Unlikely, but you still have to estimate that in this realm of his life, this is a mall. Uh, you know, a, a, a morally elevated, a, a morally great human being. I mean, my my general approach is if somebody is made a lot of money in business, wow. I mean, I think very positively of that person. Yeah. I, 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 I view them. I, even in the world in which we live today, I think it's still true that most people who make a lot of money make it because they are productive, because they are producing and trading. Sure, they are the cronies and the manipulators and the dishonest guys. But I'd rather give kind of the I'd rather give people the benefit of the doubt and and let them prove me wrong. But but basically, it's just saying, but money is a measure of your morality in a sense. Yeah. Well, I, so what we were saying earlier it doesn't mean that if you don't have a lot of money, you're not moral. Sure. But it does. If you do have a lot of money, you are moral. That's more uh, likely. Uh, yeah. But again, I would. So what I would say is, if you if you are a winner in that positive sum game, the value for value game, right, and you earned your money by trading value for value, then yes, it's high likelihood you're a moral person in general. Yep. But we have a lot of rich people in fiat world that did not earn their money trading value for value, right? You look at someone like Putin, right? He's a statist. Oh yeah, sure. He's a massive Absolutely. net worth, not you know playing a zero sum game basically. I would not say his net worth. Uh, translates to his morality. No, he's he's probably the richest man in the world, and 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 but he stole it all, and we know that. Yeah. But if you know, and you look at American politicians, I mean, look at look at how rich so many of our politicians are. Yeah, and most of them have not not done anything productive in their lives other than be politicians. Look at the Obamas buying a mansion on Long Island, or the or the Clintons, how they live, or or you know, most congressmen and senators at the end of the day. It, there is real corruption in a mixed economy like ours. Mm-hmm. But when I when I look, you know, everything else I'll put aside. If I look at somebody like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and I I see out, wow, he he's I, now I don't know in a free market would be this rich, would he be a little less rich? Would you know how would it be? Yeah. I don't I don't care. Sure. But the reality is he created something that's a value to me, a value to almost everybody on planet Earth. He deserves his wealth, and he's probably a good human being for creating it. Yeah. Um, you know, and and, and it, I might not agree with his politics. I might not agree with other things, but this is a this is a moral, you know, uh, 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 morally, this is a good thing, and a good a significant part of his life is spent on this moral activity, which is business, which is creating value. Yes, one hundred percent. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers: thirty-six thousand, twenty-five, and one. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. 
Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technologies. iCoin has released a free software update for all existing wallet holders that includes a secure messaging feature called Chamber. With the Chamber upgrade, you can send text messages with all the security benefits of a cold device. With wallet-to-wallet encrypted messaging, there is zero chance of a message being decrypted by a snooping third party. Chamber's encrypted messages can only be created and read on an iCoin wallet, which means messages are never seen in plain text on a hot device. You can use any messaging platform to send Chamber encrypted messages. Even if the messaging channel is compromised, your messages will remain uncrackable. You can now generate and store your message encryption keys on a cold device. This means you become the central authority and your encryption keys are never seen on a network connected device or kept in cloud storage by a third party. So why not protect your private communications like you protect your Bitcoin private keys? Pick up a few iCoin chambers today for friends, family, and coworkers. With the iCoin Chamber, your privacy is built right in. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. All right, trying to tease out the connection maybe between, you know, so money, what did she say earlier here? That money as energy, right? It's like a claim on the, the energy of those that produce and it's also rooted in this moral principle that, we need to trade value for value. If we consider that energy is like life itself, basically, like to be alive is to be energized. And then morality is something like a code for living. Yep. I'm reminded of this other quote of Rand's, which I'll roughly paraphrase. She says, the 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 right to life is the sole human right, and property is its only proper implementation. Because each man must sustain his life by the product of his own effort, he who cannot control the products of his effort cannot sustain his own life and is a slave. So that maybe the deeper principle underlying both money as energy and money as morality is property, right? Like when you start to violate private property, it it destroys the means for sustaining your own life effectively. Absolutely. And, and and you really can't have money without property, at least some semblance of property, right? I mean, money in it of itself is property, but money is derived from property, the property that you trade. Uh, yeah. You know, if, if you don't own, if you don't own your means of production, that is, if you don't own the things that you produce, right. your time, your energy, if you don't own your time and energy and the things that your time and energy has created, then you can't get money. I mean, it's, 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 right. uh, so yes, but you know the value money comes ultimately from the fact that you have a right to property, which is derived from the fact that you have the one right, which is the right to your life. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Uh, another excerpt, a little further down, Rand writes: "Money is made before it can be looted or mooched, made by the effort of every honest man, each to the extent of his ability." An honest man is one who knows that he can't consume more than he has produced. To trade by means of money is the code of men of goodwill. Money rests on the axiom that every man is the owner of his mind and his effort. Money allows no power to prescribe the value of your effort except the voluntary choice of the man 
who is willing to trade you his effort in return. Uh, just so good. Um, yeah, again, yeah, good. Just again, back to the morality thing, right? It's like you can't, there's what it's like a game, I guess, right? She's saying it's this, 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 uh, what did she say earlier? Like a statement of hope that someone, a producer will trade you one of his products for the money. There's this gameness to money that it needs to be something that has integrity or trustworthiness to keep this value for value a uh, series of exchanges taking place. Absolutely. If, it, if every time you exchange it, it loses something. Yeah. Or, or if over time it's constantly losing, that makes everything much more complicated and and and, and less meaningful, right? It's not clear yes. how we measure then the value for value. And the point she's making here is, I think the most important point here is that money is made, mm-hmm. right? So that when you earn money, in a in a society in which um, you can only earn money for production, well, the production it, it, the act of production is a creation of something out of nothing, and to the extent that there is money that is reflected in that, you exchanging your production for that money, that money has come into being out of nothing, right? It it is a a a a uh, 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 made. As she she talks later on, of course, about. Americans talking about making money versus, you, you, you know, for Europeans, money is primarily redistributed. Right, you know, right. Americans actually make money, create wealth. Yes. That's, that's, the, that's this notion of producers. Producers create something out of nothing. Uh, well, out of stuff, but out of nothing in the sense that, you know, you take a bunch of different components, but you turn it into this. That That's... Right, you take a bunch of atoms and you turn it into something new that didn't exist before. You just it wasn't there. In that sense, it's creating something out of nothing. And by creating values out there, you, in a sense, you're creating money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things, one of the things, you know, one of the things that made the gold standard work, and one of the attractiveness of gold, is that it, it was limited in supply. Mm-hmm. That the, the, the discoveries of gold and the extraction of gold mimic the rise in productivity in the rest of the economy. So as in a sense, more stuff was being made, more money was being mined. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a correlation between the amount of stuff being made and the amount of money entering into the circulation. And that's what kept price inflation relatively stable. Now, yes, if you had a big find and suddenly you get a lot of gold, you get... Mm-hmm of of short-term um, uh, price rises. But over time, there is a match between the production of money and the production of everything else. And mm-hmm. that's one of the appeals um, of, of uh, commodity-based, uh, commodity-based money, particularly gold. Um, but, you know, you can't... You, so you have to create the products that make money possible. And... You can't steal anything. You can't mooch off of anyone until mm. they've built something. They've created something, and th- this this idea of value for value is a recognition of each person's productive capacity. There's also an implication here for you know how the left talks about and, and the left talks about wage slavery. Have you heard this term? No. So I get these who get salaries. Are really just slaves. Oh, wage slavery. Yes, I've heard of this. Yeah, yes. they're being exploited. Right. right. And she's saying, 
No, you know, this is this is the point here about voluntary, you know, uh, a voluntary choice. I'm making a voluntary choice to engage in a productive activity, to use my energy and my mind to whatever my ability is. And I exchange that with my employer. I give him the energy, my mind, my productive ability, and he gives, he, he value for value, pays me with money. Yes. Which I could then use to buy the products produced by others. Yes. So, you know, far from being wage slavery, this is another moral activity that employer-employee relationships, another moral, you know, moral activity of value for value, of exchange, of uh, and 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 money is 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 the way in which we we measure that. It's a way in which that gets reflected. Right? Yes. Yeah, and facilitated even. Facilitated. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And. Rooted in consent, right? So that you, the way you can't say, wage slavery is oxymoron because, well, you can quit, you can go elsewhere, you can sell your labor to different employers, the employer can fire you, you can buy labor from other people. That's why she says voluntary choice, right? We all make voluntary choices yes. in a free society with who to engage with, under what terms to engage with, yes. right? A voluntary choice of the man who is willing to trade you. His effort in return, right? The 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 manager, the 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 owner is exerting energy to organize this project, to organize this factory, to organize whatever it is that you're doing. You're exchanging your energy, the work that you do for his energy in organizing all this. And yes. that's the exchange that's happening. And it it it's facilitated with money. Yes, absolutely. And there's also Every time we talk about wage slavery or, you know, employers taking advantage of employees, there's there's not enough discussion about the risk being borne by the employer or the capitalists, right? Like they're the ones putting capital at risk. If they mis or, or misorganize the endeavor, they suffer the loss, right? The employee gets paid no matter what. If the project goes well or goes bad, they get their wage no matter what. So it's this it's this risk and reward spectrum that's not discussed enough. I think when you well risk and reward and time. I mean, I I always use the example of uh, you can start a biotech company tomorrow. I mean, you know, and and uh, the capitalists put up the money. And if you you invest, if you've ever invested in biotech, you know you're not going to see a dime for 10, 15 years probably mm -hmm. in time. The scientists, the janitors, the everybody who works in the company is going to get paid every single month. Yep. They're going to get their wages. They're going to be upset if they don't. And the capitalist probably won't see a dime back for 10, 15 years. That's right. Uh, so, and he might never see anything back. Most biotech companies don't succeed. So he might see zero. Mm -hmm. uh, so the reality is once in a while, he'll invest in a company where he, uh, he he sees a lot of return, but over a long period of time. But you're right, risk and time, yes. which are always related. Um, it, it is something that the employee is buying from the capitalist. The capitalist is, uh, and and is is giving up the use of the money for a long time, and is taking risk. He might never see it again. That's right. Bingo. I liked how you zeroed in on production as like the creation of something from nothing. Um, and I there's. There's a line here I want to want to try to pursue with you. So, like, I I view, I have viewed. I talked about this on the Lex Friedman podcast actually. That one of the primary drives of human nature, in my opinion, is that 
humans want to get something for nothing, right? Now, this could be moral or immoral, right? This could be the producer, the, the entrepreneur that's sort of cleverly or lazily solving a problem, right? That I want to get this thing done, but there's a better way to do it, so I'll come up with a solution for it. The, the productivity gains you get is like getting a little something for nothing. Or there's the immoral path, right? Which is the looter. He just wants to go and take the, the products of a producer. Yeah, but this was another something for nothing. I mean, well, that's not quite energy. nothing. So if I just thought here, yeah, yeah, there's always energy, right? There's the energy involved in coercion. There's the energy involved in entrepreneurship or whatever. But I guess what I'm trying to say is you want to get more output per unit of input, right? Which is like, you're creating something where there was nothing before, something like that. And so, which is another maybe way of just saying that humans pursue profits, right? If you got pure something from pure nothing, that'd be 100% profit margin, but obviously you get different profit margins on, on what you do. So when I, when I think of it like that, my view is that to optimize human action, the main thing we could do is to make looting or coercion as unprofitable as possible. Like actually, I, I've, I don't see a higher aim for socioeconomic purposes, at least, than than that. And I, I don't know. I just wanted to throw that out there and hear your thoughts. I mean, I think that's right. I think that that uh, you know, looting is unbelievably destructive. It, it 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 destroys the motivation of those seeking a profit. And I think you're right. Profit is what we're all geared towards. It's value for value, right? What is a profit? A profit is. I mean, when I buy an iPhone, I'm getting profit. Yes, because it's ecological I'm profit. It's more valuable to me than the thousand dollars I gave up. So I'm, yeah. I'm net better off. We can't, we don't measure it accounting wise, but it is a profit. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly trying to better ourselves, and what the looter does is he prevents us from doing it. Any, 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 any attacks fundamentally affects the means by which we do it, which is our, which is the use of our mind. Uh, the, 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 the looter, the authoritarian, the, the dictator, the, uh, are basically trying to gain, uh, trying to take away, uh, our effort, our energy, our mind away from us. Uh, and, 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 and they do it by taking them, the, the product, you know, the thing that we actually produce. Mm. Uh, and if we can extract force, and this is why extracting force of society is so important. If we can extract force of society, if we can ban looting and, and of all its types, then that's the, that's a precursor for a civilization, for civilized society. Yeah, wonderfully said. And it, it... I, I thought you were going in a different direction because there, there is a sense in which people out there want something for nothing in the sense that, you know, you the welfare and and uh, and mm-hmm. and Anna from heaven, right? They they wanted to just show up. And they they you know people say you know they just want the TV, it's an eighty five inch TV to show up on their wall. <laughs> They're not willing to engage in the effort, the energy, the value for value, yeah, to gain that TV. And most of them are not quite willing to do the looting themselves, right? So they they outsource the looting, and they legitimize the looting. By uh, voting for it, yes, through uh, through a government mechanism, right? So they 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 outsource it, and and that to me is the 
you know, the, the, the mentality of, of something for nothing is the mentality of, um, of everything being available to me without working. And the entrepreneur who makes, you know, keeps improving stuff. If you think about how entrepreneurs and how founders work, they work super hard mm -hmm. to make small improvements. Mm -hmm. because partially because they love it and because they're, they're motivated and they're energized by it. And you compare that to the true nothing, something from nothing, the, the, the looters who just want to sit around and just get it all, just drop from heaven and, and have it. Um, sometimes I call it the Garden of Eden mentality because in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, human beings didn't, man and, and woman didn't need to do anything. All their needs were provided. Right. Right. And it's only when they eat from the fruit of knowledge, right? And uh, they, they discover the knowledge of good and evil, which I think is the knowledge of life and death. And, and do they do they now have to produce? Yes. So God sends them down to the world and they have to farm and they have to actually produce in order to live. Yes. And that's when they become human, right? They're not human in the Garden of Eden. Yes. They're, they're just a, a, an animal. But once they, get, once they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they become human. And so many people aspire to going back to the Garden of Eden. Yes. They want to just lay around and have all the goods <laughs> given to them, produced for them somehow. But, but but they don't want to think about somebody else producing them. They don't want to think about exploiting other people. They just want the goods to appear out of thin air. Yeah, this is where I think this is such a pernicious problem. And I have a really, there's a chicken and the egg thing here in my view. Because we have looters, right? The politicians that want to convince the voting public that looting is necessary, right? We need to increase taxes or print money or whatever the thing is. So they're selling the ideology of systematic looting, basically. But then the citizens, so they become, I guess, brainwashed by this to some extent. So in one way you could blame the politicians, but then the voting public are actually voting for the looters because they want the free stuff. They want the something for nothing, just like the politicians want the something for nothing, which is tax revenue. And so there's this, I don't know who, I don't know where to assign the blame. It just seems like kind of a vicious cycle. And this, this reminds me of that, that quote that's so good on this. Every public election is an advanced auction on stolen goods. <laughs> I think captures it so well. Yeah, and it's 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 the ideas it's ideas that drive all of this. So if if so, if, 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 who are to blame? You blame them all. All of them are to blame. Mm -hmm. um, it's the politicians and the public who have embraced an, a philosophy that basically said that looting under certain circumstances for the common good, if it's for a good purpose defined by whatever, mm -hmm. is okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, there's a great story. It's probably not true, but there's a great story uh, about uh, Davy Crockett, who was a congressman in, uh, in the 19th century, and he tells this story about um, what was it? The, yeah, they, 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 there was this. Uh, there's this uh, um, general or something who who died, and he he left his he left his wife destitute, and he was a like a hero of the of the Republican, and, and Congress came together and. And they voted her a pension. Hmm. Voted hmm. her a pension. Hmm. And David Crockett votes to give her a pension, right? And then he's running, he's running for re-election and he's out there and he and he and he comes across this you know, this well-known guy. He was a, one of the founders and and is a is a real moral, you know, figure in you know, this is in Tennessee. And 
And he says, I, I see you're going to vote for me in it. And the guy says, no, I'm not going to vote for you. And he says, he says, why? He says, you can't take my money and give it to some widow without asking my permission. Huh. It's and it's not yours to give. The money's not yours to give. You, you know, I feel for I feel for the widow. Maybe, maybe I'd give him. Maybe I wouldn't. Depends what's going on in my life. But you don't have a right to use my money to give a pension to a widow, as good of a cause as it might be. Huh. And and the story is that later he goes back to Congress, and there's a big fire in Washington D.C. and they can see all these buildings burning in the background and everybody's homeless, and they come into session and they're going to vote on. They're going to vote on uh, giving the money, right? I mean, it's horrible. There's a fire. It's, it's mm -hmm. people in need. Mm -hmm. And uh, and David Caucus stands up and he says, it's not ours to give. If if you guys, if if we all think that we should help them, here's, here's my money. I'm putting it in my pocket. <laughs> and I'm willing to contribute $200 to help, to help the people who are destitute. How about you guys? Mm -hmm. And, it, it, you know, so what happens is that it usually starts out of kind of quote, good intentions, right. which is going to help those. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a feedback mechanism because those people are now indebted, but also there are other people who are in need. Oh, wait a minute, you gave them money. Why aren't you giving us money? Yes. And it just feeds and feeds, and, and, it, and there's no end to it because there's always somebody who needs money. And the principle is, at least in this context, it's not yours to give, right? Yes. You, you, can't, you can't use other people's money in this way. And it, once you abandon principle, once you abandon the idea of, what what the government's supposed to do, uh, which is which is protect, not not save people, not not help people, not assist people. Once you abandon that, then there's no end to it, and everybody's at fault for yes. for ban because everybody supports it. Yes, and we get the politicians we deserve, right? I mean, the culture deserves the politicians we have as, right. as much as I hate to say it. Yeah, that's uh, a sticky one. I, and then again, Atlas shrugged spells this out brilliantly and follows through the consequences of this, right? When we get into this Marxist mantra of from each according to their ability to each according to their need, it's like, well, who's judging whose ability, who's incentivizing the, those with ability to produce, who's judging who has need, who, like, it It just, it's Absolutely. not. I mean, there's that story of the, the Stans auto company, right, where, 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 where they, they decide to run the company on that principle. I don't know yeah. the story. It's in Atlas Shrug. Oh, okay. Oh, company. this is okay. Yes, I do remember that company. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I didn't know the name of the company though. It was the Spawn's family? I forget the name of the auto company. And um, yeah, I mean, and 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 they they try to run the company that way. But the real fundamental question has to be asked: Why, from each of to from his ability to each according to his means, why is that a good thing? Mm -hmm. Why is that moral? Why is that noble? Why is that good? Put aside how to implement it. It can be implemented. No. But why is it even a moral ideal? And and one of the problems in our society, for example, is that people say things like, I hear this all the time, right? Yeah, communism doesn't work, but it's a great idea, right? Because it's a noble ideal because, I mean, who, who can be against each, from each according to his ability to each according to his means? And, and you know, I think Ayn Rand is coming and saying, wait a minute. No, no, that whole idea is wrong. That whole idea is evil. Mm -hmm. It's morally offensive. Morality is not about morality is about justice is about to each according to his ability. Yeah. And then if the people of ability want to help out some people here and there because they're uh, falling in bad luck, great. But that has to be voluntary. Yeah. But the essential is the essential of justice is you get what you deserve. Yes. Yeah. Well said. 
One of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape. To take care of my brain power, I do many things, such as striving to read, write, exercise, and meditate daily. One of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world, my thinking is more lucid, and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com slash breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com slash breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a crowdfunding platform for paying medical expenses in lieu of an insurance policy. CrowdHealth recently announced that it is integrating lightning payments with Breeze's Lightning SDK. In the United States, we spend more than twice the average amount of money on healthcare than other developed nations. Medical costs are one of the leading causes of bankruptcy in the United States, and it is not a secret that the medical system in the U.S. has many, many issues. The CrowdHealth model is based on offering an alternative to the conventional insurance policy at a cheaper price point. For a monthly membership fee of $50, CrowdHealth will negotiate medical bills to get the cheapest price possible, help locate healthcare providers, offer access to their member crowdfunding service, and more. Prior to the Breeze integration, CrowdHealth had been functioning over traditional fiat payment rails, which introduced unnecessary transaction fees and delays in settlement. By integrating Lightning payments into the CrowdHealth business model, payments between members can now be made with near-zero fees and with final settlement occurring in mere seconds. So go to joincrowdhealth.com breedlove today to sign up. Uh, jumping back into the piece... Another great excerpt here. She writes, money demands that you sell not your weakness to men's stupidity, but your talent to their reason. It demands that you buy not the shoddiest they offer, but the best that your money can find. And when men live by trade with reason, not force as their final arbiter, it is the best product that wins, the best performance the man of best judgment and highest ability. And the degree of a man's productiveness is the degree of his reward. This is the code of existence whose tool and symbol is money. Is this what you consider evil? But money is only a tool. It will take you wherever you wish, but it will not replace you as the driver. It will give you the means for satisfaction for the satisfaction of your desires, but it will not provide you with desires. Money is the scourge of the men who attempt to reverse the law of causality, the men who seek to replace the mind by seizing the products of the mind. I mean, this segues perfectly from what you were just saying. It's like... Absolutely. I mean, it covers what we talked about earlier in the sense that uh, and the degree of a man's productiveness is the degree of his reward, right? That is, that is kind of the the the, man, the 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 billionaires among us, to the extent that they do it in a free market. Yeah, you know, they, this is their reward, and it's a justified reward, and it's the right reward. Um, and in a in a proper society, the best product wins, the best performance, the best people 
uh, you know, are successful. But money is is a tool. It's 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 some more than a tool, and you still have to make choices. You have to make choices about what kind of life to live. Uh, you know what you value and what you don't value, and then you have the means, the money to be able to pursue that or not. But yes. it it doesn't tell you what values you sh- how you should live and what values you should have. Yeah. So, so fortunately, people can get rich and be very unhappy because they make bad choices about other parts of their life. Yes. Yes. And uh, this love, I mean. It's so philosophically deep, right? This this value for value code of existence can only be facilitated and symbolized by money. Like there is no other choice. If we're going to be, it's like it's it's what are we saying? Money is indispensable to scaling human rationality, something like that, right? Like you can't. We're rational animals. And we need to deal with one another con- through consensual exchange. The emergent property of that is money. And if you start to corrupt the money, then you unwind the whole process of rational human interaction. Absolutely, and rationality leads to production. And without without money, there's in without production, there's no, you know, there's no money. So yeah, I mean, it's all tied together. It's all one whole. And we corrupt one piece of it by, for example, corrupting money by 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 inflating it, by yeah. by distorting it, by perverting it. You're corrupting. The, the whole sequence that is required in order to make it possible, right? From yeah. rationality to integrity uh, to production. And then she, I mean, I just this hits like a ton of bricks, I think. Money is the scourge of the men who attempt to reverse the law of causality, the men who seek to replace the mind by seizing the products of the mind. Like you can't, it's never going to work yep. because if all acts of production are coming from the human mind, you can't coerce someone to innovate, right? Or to, to create a new solution to problems. It has to be a product of freedom. And this is why authoritarian regimes are always going to be poor. Yes. This is why the more authoritarian China becomes right now, the less innovation there will be, the, the less GDP will grow, the less good stuff they'll produce. You know, this is not optional. Just yes. to really produce... To have wealth, to have money, real money, you need to be free. And uh, the less free you are, the less money you will create. China is creating a lot less money now than it did 10 years ago when it was a little bit freer. And the more authoritarian it becomes, the less money you will produce. Yes. Yes. So, so true. Um, Okay. I'm going to wind down a little further here. Man, I have so many excerpts in this piece because it's just so good. Um. Okay, a little further down, she writes, run for your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. And she goes on a little bit further down. Um, Let me see where I should jump in here. She's basically saying, if you see these uh, looters approaching, she writes, then you will see the rise of the men of the double standard, the men who live by force, yet count on those who live by trade to create the value of their looted money, the men who are the hitchhikers of virtue. 
In a moral society, these are the criminals, and the statutes are written to protect you against them. But when a society establishes criminals by right and looters by law, men who use force to seize the wealth of disarmed victims, then money becomes its creator's avenger. Such looters believe it safe to rob defenseless men once they've passed a law to disarm them. But their loot becomes the magnet for other looters who get it from them as they got it. Then the race goes, not to the ablest at production, but to those most ruthless at brutality. When force is the standard, the murderer wins over the pickpocket, and then that society vanishes in a spread of ruins and slaughter. And that is the what we talked about earlier. You go from a win-lose dynamic, and society will inevitably degenerate into a lose-lose situation. And Absolutely. That, it happens in our personal lives, and it happens in society. If we could deliver one point from this book into the minds of people, I think that would be it. It's like just win-win or or bust. Like it, it just doesn't work if it's not a win-win. If it's not consensual. And 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 how beautiful is it to have to have a view of life where your focus in life is to maximize your win-win relationships, to maximize your win-win transactions, exactly. to never engage in a lose-win or win-lose. Yes. To, to never lose, ne- never cause somebody else to lose, never cause yourself to lose. Just, just yes. and and how much richer do we all become when that exactly, you know, when that is the way in which we interact with one another. Yeah, that he, it's a beautiful message that you'd think would have a lot of appeal. Thankfully, the win-win. I mean, it's, we're just, I guess, fortunate that it it works out that the moral path is the pragmatic path, right? Like the win-win. That's moral is also the practical wealth producing path of prosperity. Like if I mean, it was the opposite, we'd have a real problem. <laughs> yeah, and she would say, you know, that human beings could probably couldn't survive if it wasn't that way. Yeah, that is, you know, uh, and 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 this is why. I mean, she said the moral is the practical, and the practical is the moral. I can't mm. you know, it's in one of her essays, and and if you derive a morality as she does from the requirements of human survival from the requirements of human nature, then you're going to get a morality that works. Mm. Otherwise, it's not moral <laughs> mm. because it doesn't lead to human survival, thriving happiness. Right? So her whole orientation is, 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 is the ability of human beings to survive and thrive. Mm. And what does it require? What morality fits that? Right? Right. How, do, how do you survive? And you derive your morality as that. That's what morality is about. Yes. It's a, a guide to living well. Well said. I so I'm curious here. One of the issues I had with Rothbard, for instance, um, who I think is a brilliant um, Austrian economist, brilliant author. Um, but in his book, The Ethics of Liberty, he well, I don't know if this is a problem. It's a point of confusion I have. He's basically saying that lying is okay, and he says lying is okay because you haven't transferred any property. Like if you just tell someone a lie, like it doesn't matter. There's there's no loss. But that morally doesn't land for me. Do you no, know? Do you know Ayn Rand's views? Like, how does deception fit into her philosophical view? Oh yeah, no, she she rejects lying. I mean, I mean, there's there's a context in which lying is okay. I don't know if the if the rapist is at your door and asking where your wife is. Sure, your obligation to lie, right? Right. Um, so to extend the value, yeah, it's it's okay to lie. But that is the only context in which it's okay to lie. 
that is lying all human relationships are relationships fundamentally of trade. Mm-hmm. All human relationships are built in value for value. And when you lie, you are creating a lose-win situation. You are presenting a non-reality. You are mm. trying to exchange fake money. Mm. It's, 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 it's counterfeit, right? So I don't know, uh, um, where were you last night? Oh, I was, uh, you know, out with buddies, but I don't know. I was working late, but you were really out with buddies. You're using you're using a, um, a a you know counterfeit. Yes, yes. Right. I was I was working late to right. gain a value, which is her trust, right, or or, right. or or knowledge of what you were doing, right? Unless she says she has no she has no business in what I was doing, but but assuming she's your wife or your girlfriend or whatever, she does have a business. So yes. So it's, it's counterfeit. It it it's exactly like trading counterfeit money. Uh, so even though so you see, Rothbard boils everything down to property. Mm-hmm. And I think he's wrong, right? And and this is why this is why I think Rand is 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 the superior philosopher because in in here she's boiling it down to life, mm-hmm. and she and therefore the spiritual experiences, the experiences you have with other people, are also valuable, even though they don't involve property. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, listening to music is an amazing experience. There's no property there. Right. Um, you know, love is an amazing experience. There's no property there. Right. And yet, there is some relationship that has to happen. You mm-hmm. love and and, but they, it's the equivalent of counterfeiting, uh, lying. But that's true of a lot of things. Um, you know, lying to yourself. Think of it this way: lying to yourself. What if you lie to yourself? Yeah. There's no property implications. Right. So does that mean it's 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 moral to lie to yourself? Rand says no. Because your tool for survival is reason. Mm-hmm. Reason requires facts, mm. reality. To lie to yourself is to undermine your own reason. Mm. It's immoral. It would be immoral to lie to yourself. So her, her, her whole conception of reality is, is much broader and much deeper uh, and, and much and grounded on something real, which is human survival. That's why it's too much of a subjectivist when it comes to morality. Well, that's fantastic. I love the metaphor of counterfeiting because you're you're basically counterfeiting the products of human rationality, which are facts, right, or or explanations, whatever it may be. Um, and that's a good critique on Rothbard too, because I, I again I really appreciate his writing and I appreciate him boiling things down to property to make the connection across a lot of domains. Mm-hmm. But there is a maybe a philosophical layer deeper, which is value or life that that Rand is is getting at. But they're closely related, as she said in that earlier quote, right? Like property mm-hmm. is like the means for sustaining life. So you know, absolutely. But it's not the only means, and exactly. it, it's and and there's a whole realm of human experiences that does not directly involve property. Yeah, exactly, human relationships, for example. Yeah. So lying is counterfeiting facts basically that's yeah. a great, great yeah. metaphor and the, the other thing is that Rand views morality in the context of you with yourself right morality exists on a desert island mm. right if you're the only person on an island you, there's still morality what do you do with your life do you mm. do you try to sustain it do you try to make it good do you try to make it as enjoyable as possible in in a in a property oriented moral code morality is and and most people's moral code it only involves other people. Yes. Right. The most important person 
to whom you must be moral is yourself. Mm. Right? You're not producing for others. You're producing for you. You're, produ you're, you're, not, you're, you're committed to honesty, not for others, but for yourself, for your own rationality, for your own life, for your happiness. Um, yeah. So it's a different orientation. So that's why it's deeper than Rothbard, right? Because property is a social institution or a normative structure in the in the context of social interrelations, but yeah. value and morality is individual individualistic. Yeah, and this is the sense in which rights are much more social, right? Rights only come into bear. You don't have rights on a desert island. Mm. You have rights once you engage with other people, once you get into society. But morality is deeper. Morality is about you. It's about your life and what you do with your life in every interaction that you have in the world. Mm, interesting. Um, one more excerpt. Well, not one more, but another excerpt here. Whenever destroyers appear among men, they start by destroying money, for money is men's protection and the base of a moral existence. Destroyers seize gold and leave to its owners a counterfeit pile of paper. This kills all objective standards and delivers men into the arbitrary power of an arbitrary setter of values. Gold was an objective value, an equivalent of wealth produced. Paper is a mortgage on wealth that does not exist, backed by a gun aimed at those who are expected to produce it. I think that is the best one-liner for fiat currency I have ever read. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it really is completely arbitrary. We have paper money because somebody, you know, a, a government agency printed it and it put it into circulation. Why? By what standard? Not by the standard production, by some algorithm that they have, but, or by the whim of the Federal Reserve Chairman. Um, and, and we all live with a consequence and, you know, people think of that as inflation, but there's a gazillion ways in which fiat money distorts economy and perverts production and you know, uh, 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 who gets the money first and who gets the money last is a redistribution of wealth. There's incentives to invest it in, uh, what the Austrians called malinvestment in, in, uh, areas that in 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 a proper money system would not deserve investment. There's just massive distortions and perversions. Um, and it's and the only reason it exists, because men would not voluntarily ever give anybody the power to just put, create as much money as they want. The only reason it exists is because some men have guns and others do not. That is, yeah. some enforce the laws and others. Yeah, yeah there's... I agree with that, but then when I also look at the, and maybe this is just after a hundred years of Keynesian pseudoscientific propaganda, like there's people that believe we need central banks and we need money printing, and there's a, there's oh, yeah. a there's a psychological coercion, I don't know, hijacking that goes on along with this. It's like not only do they have the guns, but they've also convinced the victims that the victims need to be victimized. Absolutely, but and you see that everywhere. I mean, so. Uh... You know, right now, for example, uh, microchips are really, really important, right? We all know that a lot of modern world depends on microchips. So the government should produce them. So now we have uh, now we have uh, a, a whole industrial plan on how the government is going to invest in microchips and, and help produce microchips. You know, it, the reason 
money was one of the first things nationalized mm. is because it's so important. Yeah. It's because the root of all production. Yeah. And so it was the first thing that was nationalized, you know, through the through, through the Federal Reserve System. Mm. It was taken out of our voluntary hands and centralized and stolen from us. It initially under the pretense that, it, oh, no, we're still on a gold standard, but that was always just a ruse. Yeah. Uh, what they wanted was the ability to just print money and have control of all of us. It's it's a means of control. Yeah. 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 It's a great point. Uh, what? Money is almost like that inflection point between power and liberty, right? It's like we've, it's been struggling back and forth, right? The power is always trying to monopolize and mm-hmm. counterfeit it. And then liberty is trying to free it and uh, expand the purchasing power of it, right, through production. So it's it's constantly. And if you think about, uh, you know, I think I think the world of finance is really dedicated the last fifty years to just figuring out ways to get around the fact that it's a fiat money. Yeah. It's, so there are all kinds of contracts that allow you to prescribe its value so that you don't lose too much if there's inflation. Mm-hmm. And and to get around regulations, I mean, almost all financial innovation today is is either to deal with the fact that it's fiat or to deal with the fact that there's massive regulations on the circulation of of, of money and capital. Yeah, yeah. Well said. What a waste of what a waste of human energy. Minds. Yeah, human energy, energy, human minds. It's going into production. It's going into getting around the government's barriers to production, which is so arbitrary and pointless, right? It's like. We construct these arbitrary barriers and we spend so much of our mind and our energy navigating them, trying to circumvent them. Like, it's just, it's it's sort of like the tax code or something. We we have this, I think the IRS tax code is like 11 million words or something absurd. Like how much cognitive labor goes into navigating this piece of artifice that we could just do away with, right? We just either have a flat tax or no tax or something. Yeah, I mean, imagine if, 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 yeah, okay, we don't want to be too radical, so we're going to have a flat tax. We're not going to, have to eliminate completely. We probably raise exactly the same amount of revenue as we do today. Yeah. Lots simpler, and a lot of accountants would be out of a job, and a lot of tax lawyers would be out of a job, but then they'd be doing something productive, right? Right yeah. now, their function is really a zero-sum function in a sense. Right. Because nothing new is being produced other than satisfying government. And yes. so much of our effort these days is going towards zero-sum activities. Yes. Everything that is there to satisfy government, filling out our taxes, you know, filling out permission to start a business, to applying for regulatory this, regulatory that, getting a license mm-hmm. to shampoo hair or, or whatever license you mm-hmm. get. Mm-hmm. All of that is zero-sum activity because no- nothing is being produced. You. You either know how to do it or you don't know how to do it. Prove it in the marketplace. Amen to that. Another excerpt here, we're on the second to last one. Rand writes, To the glory of mankind, there was, for the first and only time in history, a country of money. And I have no higher, more reverent tribute to pay to America for this means, a country of reason, justice, freedom, production, and achievement. For the first time, man's mind and money were set free, and there were no fortunes by conquest, but only fortunes by work. And instead of swordsmen and slaves, there appeared the real maker of wealth, the greatest worker, the highest type of human being, the self-made man, the American industrialist. 
If you ask me to name the proudest distinction of Americans, I would choose, because it contains all the others, the fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money. No other language or nation had ever used these words before. Men had always thought of wealth as a static quantity to be seized, begged, inherited, shared, looted, or obtained by favor. Americans were the first to understand that wealth has to be created. The words to make money hold the essence of human morality. This is so far afield from most people's conception of money as the root of all evil. I mean, she is, she is saying money is the root of all good to the extent justice, freedom, reason, production, and achievement are good. Yep. Um, no, it's it's an amazing passage. It's and it's it's true. I mean, America was certainly post Civil War the first country in history built on a created based on a principle, the principle of individual rights, where people were basically free. Uh, and uh, you know, with the with the if we sadly they didn't follow through with it immediately, and and they had slavery. But uh, the idea was. It was, it was up to you, um, uh, you to apply your reason and to go out there and produce and create and achieve. And it's not an accident that during, you know, from, from the founding, I'd say the first to the World War I, America became the richest country in the world. And, and create, you had these great American industrialists. These are people who, who produced, who used their reason and, uh, and were free. You didn't have to, in those days, You'd have to ask permission to start a steel company or to start a business. Right. You just went and started a business. Yeah. And if people want to trade with you, they traded with you. And if you were really successful, you became a gazillionaire. Mm -hmm. And if you want you once, that was that was, you know, that and, and it was all done voluntarily without coercion. And that America has disappeared. Although elements of it still exist, the the, the pieces of it, but it it's it's become diluted and mixed. And a big part of that dilution and mixture results from that kind of the nationalization of money. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say, you know, like I, I read uh, Titan, which is a biography on John D. Rockefeller, and a lot of his success is attributed to that, right? That he came up in this low to no tax environment, this very libertarian-ish world, basically. Most uh, we've ever come to real freedom. Yeah, and, and today most industries, especially meat space industries aren't like that. We maybe have some semblance of that in digital space, right? The, yeah. I think know. the Silicon Valley for a while was like that. Yeah. You know, maybe that's changing, but if for a while, uh, in its suddenly in its early years, it was there was no regulation, there were no control. People people just did stuff and yeah. uh and and some succeeded, some failed and and it was in it just an inspiring place. It's become more a little bit more crony, a little bit more mixed over the decades. I, I think the beginning of the end of Silicon Valley, in a sense, was, I think, the antitrust suit against Microsoft. Yes. Yeah, 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 for sure. And you, I, I mean, there's still some areas in cyberspace, I think, you can go and create businesses yep. like that yep. are, are sort of mostly free from regulation. Like, there's, there's some in the Bitcoin space that... You know, some of these Bitcoin wallets, just they're just free and open source software. They create privacy features and they release it in the wild. Like they don't 
yep. the government can't do anything to stop that. So, yep. um, but well, they're certainly it, trying. <laughs> yeah, to the extent we've lost that, though, it's really it's just unfortunate because again, we're what well, the government it's holding we, back human potential, basically. We could be living a lot longer. We could be living a lot better. We could be all of us so much richer. Yeah. Uh, and and the only barrier to all of that is freedom. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, one short excerpt to close out. This is the closing excerpt to the piece. Rand writes, until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, then men become the tools of other men. Blood, whips, guns, or dollars, take your choice. There is no other, and your time is running out. Man, that's powerful. Yeah. When I read this piece on the the thing, I replaced dollars with Bitcoin because dollars are now doomed. Um, but yes, we need honest money, basically. Something. Not a measure. I mean, it it, sim- it, it, it meant a unit of, of weight, a, a unit of weight of gold. Yes. That's your meaning, right? Yes. So basically, she was saying gold at this time, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, just a, just a great... Uh, and this is just again a sample of what's in Atlas Shrugged. I mean, yeah. she has yeah. these diatribes on what, like love, justice. Um, I, I don't know, it, like it's gold speech that covers everything. It covers the entire philosophy from metaphysics to to politics. Which one is that? Sorry, the final one, the gold gold speech. Oh, John Gold speech. Yeah, yeah. Today, this is John Gold speaking. You know. Yes. Yes. Um, that is a long speech, but it's it's uh, it's it's her entire philosophy kind of boiled down to seventy pages or whatever that is. So. Yeah, yeah, it's so freaking good. I, I'm gonna read it now. I've only listened to it, and audiobook is more convenient. Obviously, you can listen to it yep. when you're on the go, but I don't absorb it as well. So I'm gonna have to read no it. reading. It's definitely worth reading. You can highlight. You can slow down. You can reread. It's it's definitely a different experience. Where would you send people after Atlas Shrugged as far as Rand's work? Well, I mean, I think I think The Fountainhead, everybody should read The Fountainhead. It's a great novel. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, You really enjoy it. It's not, you're not going to learn, you're not going to gain much philosophically that you don't get from Atlas Shrugged, but it's a great story mm-hmm. and inspiring. In terms of the philosophy, virtue of selfishness mm-hmm. and, and capitalism, the unknown ideal, um, uh, really capitalism really l- it feeds off of kind of the, um, the, the money speech. It's, it's, a, it's an extensive, uh, philosophical discussion of free markets and, and, and money and, uh, exchange. And it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing essay, um, and a whole book. Um, if you're interested, kind of go deeper into epistemology. She's got a book called Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. Mm. Which is pretty amazing because it's it's a theory of knowledge, mm. um, and uh, she was a real revolutionary even in that. So so yeah, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot that she she produced. There, there's a ton of essays that she wrote analyzing current events that were happening in the '60s and '70s, and what's amazing is how relevant they are today. Mm. All the all, all the phenomena she was seeing, observing in the world around her. 
how all of that has led to the craziness that we're experiencing in yeah. the world. Yeah, this I think anyone that reads Atlas Shrugged will just instantly see through all the bullshit today and just see yep, it for what it absolutely. is. It's so yep. so clarifying, I guess. Um you're on, man. I really appreciate you doing this. Yeah, uh, yeah, uh, and entertaining me to go through this money speech. Um I wish I had read started reading Ayn Rand at a younger age. I will go ahead and confess that as a regret in life now. I'm sorry to have discovered her in my mid-30s, but I'm better late than never, I suppose. Better late than never, absolutely. And, <laughs> and uh, hopefully a lot of your listeners will, will will now pick up some Ayn Rand and that'll change their lives. Yes, indeed. Thanks again, and uh, thanks. we'll talk again. Yeah, thanks, Robert.